Well, it's that time again, another episode of The Money Mitch Effect. I am your host, Mitch Michaels. Great show planned for you on this Monday morning. We have NFL talk with Adam Musto, a first ever instant review, immediately following the games of week 10. A lot to process. Uh, he's a Chicago guy, that'll preview you with where we went. Talking a little Jay Cutler in there. And then we're going to talk to a good friend of mine, Kenny Kaczynski, about UFC 205. Conor McGregor is a dual champion. There's a majority draw. There's a retirement. A lot to go through there. Ultimate fighting, NFL football. Money Mitch here. Great show. Let's get to it. Time to talk NFL football. Week 10 is just about in the books. Still one more game to go on Monday night. And now bringing in a guest on the Money Mitch Effect, Adam Musto. Adam, thanks for joining the show. Second time making you an official reoccurring guest. Of course. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. It's the first time we've really ever done this, an instant reaction to Sunday's game. And I would argue, Adam, that this might have been the best Sunday of the season, top to bottom. When you look at some of the high drama games, there's always going to be some blowouts, but for the first time in a while, we saw a really balanced day of football. Yeah, there were. I mean, I, there were a lot of close, a lot of close games, a lot of surprises, you know, a lot of weird things happening, two point conversions. I, I feel like there were some funky turnovers and stuff, but the NFL is driven by parity and the unexpected and the unknown, and I think we saw that again this week. Start in kind of reverse order. We'll do the Sunday night game first. 31-24, Seahawks upset the Patriots on the road. A balanced game, back and forth game. Seahawks win by holding the Patriots at the goal line. A lot to digest in this game, but first let's talk about that final sequence. A little bit of irony. I don't think I'm the first person to point that out on Twitter, that the Patriots get to the goal line, call a couple passing plays, cannot score. Gronk stopped at the goal line, guarded by Chancellor. First of all, Adam, I didn't think that was a penalty. I'm totally fine with it not being called. And I think Seattle's defense, while hasn't been as good as in years past, very resilient, has that championship pedigree and mentality, and knows when to make the plays. We saw that last night. Yeah, I, uh, Monday night also against the Bills, the Bills had a chance to go and possibly win, win the game late as well, even though I would much rather take the Patriots offense than the Bills offense in that situation. But yeah, I don't. I think it was a good play by Chancellor. If if anything, it was more offensive pass interference. It is so hard to stop a team once you get that close to the goal line. But give them credit. You know, the the decision to go for two, I thought was kind of weird. Um, I thought it would have been a lot better to go up by two scores. But I think the Patriots are that team that you have to plan almost two steps ahead because even with the Patriots, I think you know a nine point lead isn't much. You know, if there is a team that can convert an onside kick or hit two scores in just a few minutes, it's definitely the Patriots. So they definitely keep you on your toes and, and make you probably, it's almost like in chess when, when you're trying to read your opponent's moves, maybe three or four steps ahead. Yeah, I thought too, I mean, that was what Adam's talking about for people that's not there who might not have seen the game is they were up by seven. They go for two to try to make it a nine point game instead of kick the extra point. I didn't agree with it, but I'm thinking logically maybe it was because they thought even an eight-point lead, the Patriots at a two-point conversion play have a higher success rate than normal. I'm not sure exactly what Pete Carroll was thinking. It's hard to always understand what he's thinking. But back to the Seahawk defense, there were times in that game, look, they didn't have their best game. The Patriots offense had a lot to do with that. But they created turnovers. They got pressure on Brady when they needed to. And this is a team that just finds out how to make plays. I also think, offensively and defensively speaking, Seattle overcomes bad plays. They overcome their own mistakes better than any team that I could think of right now in the NFL. When they mess up, they flip the script. It's a new day. They have a short-term memory, and I think it helps. I think a lot of teams would sulk in that situation. Seattle's not going to do that. Yeah, and I think Russell Wilson is a big part of that, too. It Seems like he's finally getting healthy. I mean, obviously, he's a great leader. He's a great playmaker. He's able to extend plays and, you know, very tough to, to bring down and, and just outright right stop. So when he, but obviously, a big part of his game is the mobility and, and, you know, for those extra playmaking scenarios where he's able to extend plays. And, and I know he was kind of hobbled by that earlier in the year. 
but it seems like uh, maybe he's getting back on track and 100% healthy now. Yeah, they look, he was banged up earlier. This team is finally getting healthy. The line looked a little better. It's not going to be great given how little money they allocate to it. I mean, you just got to accept the fact there. But yeah. they've got some weapons. Baldwin's looking good. Lockett finally made plays. C.J. Procise is turning into a nice receiving back. This is a dangerous team. And I would argue, Adam, right now, obviously the Cowboys, who we're going to talk about in a second, are the class of the NFC at the moment. Seattle's got to be that number two team. Yeah, I mean, looking down the line, there's not a whole lot of you know other teams that would scare you in the NFC. You know, obviously Seattle has the playoff experience, which I think makes a really big difference of just being in those high-pressure situations. And you know, I remember a game against the Broncos a few years ago. I think it was the year the Broncos went to the Super Bowl that the Broncos either tied the game late or took the lead late, and it looked like they were going to win. And Seattle just marched down the field and oh, yeah. with yep. a walk-off. But they're they're those teams that mm-hmm. you know they're never out of it, and then they. They never, I think, are feel like they're, the moment is too big for them. You know, when you're just kind of looking at the other teams, I know we'll talk about them later, but, you know, obviously Minnesota's fallen off. Green Bay, I, I'm always still scared of Green Bay. I, I never even counted them out against Tennessee, even if they're down by 20. But for some reason, it seems like this year is a little bit off. I wasn't buying into all the world's collapsing with them. And then, you know, Atlanta and Philadelphia are so kind of hard to figure out. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think in the playoffs, that was kind of one thing I was thinking about is, you know, there's some teams that are playing really well this season, but which teams do you trust in the playoffs or which teams, if you're playing them in the playoffs, scare you? And I think, you know, Seattle is one of those rare teams in the NFC. Right, Seattle and another stat, too, have not lost by more than 10 points since Russell Wilson was a starter. You know, that's four years, <laughs> and that's going on five. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. It's, it's just hard to, you know, Seattle never gets blown out at home. And, and, you know, some of the guys in the office we were talking about yesterday that we just never see them get really destroyed the one game we were thinking about was the playoff game against Carolina where they were down by a lot but they ended up coming back and maybe if that game had gone an extra couple more possessions they would have mm-hmm. you know mounted an even bigger comeback yeah and real quickly I think New England obviously you can't win every game Brady was going to have to come back to earth the the only alarming question I have with this team is their front seven on D not the best they don't always get pressure and when you face a quarterback with some mobility like Wilson it makes life tough, and I think that could be their kryptonite should they face a quarterback that can move. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised by the Jimmy Collins trade, and yesterday at work I was breaking down and cutting the uh, Cardinals 49ers game, and Chandler Jones had a big game for the Cardinals with a pair of sacks and a lot of pressure on Kaepernick, so maybe those losses are starting to add up, and exactly like you said, I mean, the Patriots are a really good team. Anytime they lose, it's a huge surprise. So, but every year they're going to have a couple of them, except for the year they go 16-0. and 0. So kind of looking at the overall picture, there are definitely some flaws there. I think it's just kind of if you can catch them on one of your their off days and take advantage of it and, and you know make them pay for every rare mistake they would commit. Talking NFL football week 10 with Adam Musto on the Money Mitch effect. This was a great game, Seahawks-Patriots. Probably not, though. The game of the day, most weeks it would be, but this week had Cowboys-Steelers, Adam. 35-30 Dallas wins a game with, also with, like, Seahawks-Patriots, a game with seven lead changes. Best game of the year, in my opinion. Showed a lot about both teams. You knew Pittsburgh was going to fight back after an abysmal performance against Baltimore. But the Dallas Cowboys, Adam, 8-1 now in the season, 5-0 and on the road, and... An unbelievable performance by their offense, by Ezekiel Elliott, by Dak Prescott, coming up clutch on the road in a game, honestly, that they didn't have to have, but they still found a way to get it anyway. Yeah, I mean, they. I thought this was the one game that would trip them up, and it's just crazy to think how we got here. I remember when Tony Romo, the day after he injured his back, everyone mm-hmm. was you know, saying, who's Dak Prescott, what the heck is he going to bring to the table? He's a fourth-round pick, there's no way that he can just be plugged in and play he, he wasn't expected to be a starter immediately I, I, as a fourth rounder you're probably someone that is you know in development and, and it's, it's just kind of crazy to see how well he's done especially being compared to all the quarterbacks we've seen being drafted so much higher than him and expected to be the franchise guy and he's kind of plugged in with extremely low expectations and uh, yeah I thought you know this was one chance that they had to slip up and he, even you know Ezekiel Elliott I, I know obviously had a very amazing college career, but sometimes I do get a little wary of the guys, the big name running backs out of college, if they can sustain that success in the NFL, and he's obviously taken it, and is still in striking distance of Eric Dickerson's rookie.
Pittsburgh finally put them away, but until that clock gets to triple zeros, I think the offenses in the NFL today are so talented and so so efficient that even scoring with just a handful of seconds left can prove to be leaving too much time on the board. We've talked about Dak for a while on this show, about how he's obviously taken the job. His patience and, and his ability to rise to the big moments have just been amazing. He, again, had some trip-ups early in the game, didn't let it affect him, made the throws he needed to. His comfort and presence in the pocket is very reminiscent of a lot of young elite quarterbacks. We're seeing it in Mariota. We saw it in Brady when he came off the bench. He just has that in-the-pocket ability to make plays. Elliott and that line, what they've been able to do is unbelievable. And I think, I don't want to give more credit to each. It's definitely a dual partnership. That offensive line, which also gives time to Prescott on the pass plays, is opening up monster holes for Elliott. But this is a running back that had 200 yards all-purpose, 1,000 yards in his first nine games. Probably already the best running back in the NFL. And I think now we got to say MVP candidate, legitimate, at the top of the list. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't actually think about that because it seems like rookies, first you kind of try to get the rookie of the year. But yeah, I mean, there's probably not a player in the NFL that's playing better right now. Obviously leads the league in rushing. That 83-yard touchdown he had was, was amazing. And it's crazy kind of to think about what team you're drafted by really impacts your career. And it would be interesting to see how he would do maybe with a team that didn't have as solid as an offensive line. But yeah, he's a playmaker. Prescott, is he, he does so many things well, too. We, we've talked a lot about him breaking it down for stuff at NFL. The poise, being able to make pressure throws, lock on and pinpoint accuracy, but also if there's pressure to step up and you know maybe take a hit but still deliver, and then obviously extending plays. The offensive line gives him so much time, and yeah, the, the holes are huge. You know, And uh, on Elliott's uh, game-winning touchdown yesterday, I thought maybe the Steelers are potentially letting him score so they can get the ball back with another play, which, by the way, you know, I don't know why Antonio Brown ran out of bounds. I yeah. think the NFL is overdue for a good lateral touchdown. It's been a while <laughs> since the Music City miracle. So, obviously, the Cowboys have done a great job building their offensive line. I, I think it definitely takes some time and some poise. You have to, you know, not pick the Johnny Manziels of the world, but, you know, go for the less sexy offensive linemen. And I think it's really shown, you know, obviously the Cowboys have been ridiculed a lot for their lack of wins and, and playoff disappointments over the last few years. But it, it does kind of seem like things are coming together now. And look, this is a team now 8-1. and one. We talked about the Seahawks 6-2-1. and one. That's, you know, a game and a half up. Their next three games, you have Baltimore, Washington, Minnesota. I don't know who gets a bye over them. At the very least, we're looking at a two-seed. They're going to be playing home games in the playoffs, and man, I, I think with that offensive attack, this team could win on the road, could win at home. I think they have a system that is very, very easy to execute. They have the personnel. I really like this team. Defensively, there's some question marks, but they're always going to have an offense that keeps them in the game, and man, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what this team can do in the playoffs. And On the flip side of that, Adam, the Steelers lose another one, a game where Ben Roethlisberger throws for over 400 yards. Antonio Brown has 150 receiving yards. Bell looks great, but they're still a 4-5 and five team now, a game out of first place behind the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, I know, I know James Harrison said that he was really disappointed by the defensive effort, and, and rightfully so. We have seen just a lot of inconsistency around the NFL, and, and, and I don't know exactly what to pinpoint it to. But yeah, teams look great one week, and then... You expect them to go on a run, but then they find a way to lose some critical games, and it all adds up. I mean, the division, a loss in the opposite conference isn't going to be as critical when it comes to tiebreakers and stuff, but the division races are so close, and you know sometimes it's just because the teams are so bad. There's a lot of divisions that looks like they might be won by you know nine and seven teams or, or something. So, yeah, you just got to take them when you can, and, and Baltimore is, is struggling too, so... I think the Steelers are still a team that scares you going up to any game. I think they, they can beat any team on any given Sunday for sure, but you just don't really know exactly what team's going to show up. Right, a lot of holes on that defense. We've seen that, and some of the losses yeah. they have are a lot worse than this loss to Dallas. Real yeah. quick about Prescott, I don't think the moment will be too big for him. You know, I think Romo, there was all the talk about how chokes in the playoffs. <laughs> you know, similar to back to the Chicago Cubs this year, people said, well, they're a young team. They don't care about the curses of the 108 years. That probably will be on Prescott, too. You know, he doesn't care about the botched snap and 
mm-hmm. you know, losing the Giants at home and everything. So it looks pretty clear that the Cowboys will be in the playoffs. And I assume he'd be the starter for that to see how he starts his playoff career as a Cowboy. He's definitely the starter for that. I think he's earned that right, and it would take a monumental collapse by him performance-wise to relinquish the job. Before we move on, I want to do a flyby of one division in particular. Your stopping ground, Adam, the NFC North, has had better weekends. I think we can agree on that. Oh, yeah. The Lions, far and away the winners, did not play this week. The Vikings lose the Redskins, their fourth straight. The Packers get thrashed by the Titans, and the Bears... Likewise, get destroyed by the Bucks in Tampa Bay. What do we make sense of this division at this point? We never really figured the Bears were in it. I think that's a fair statement. Now the Lions are right near the top of the division. Green Bay is in shambles. And Minnesota's lost four straight. How do we sort this out? Yeah, you know, it's funny because in week one, the Bears were the only team to lose from that division. Every other team started 1-0. The, the Lions, Vikings, and Packers all won. So I thought, okay, here we go. The Bears are going to get destroyed. And it's it's actually super ironic because the NFC North this year ended up getting the two worst divisions in football from last year's schedule. They were playing the AFC South with the Texans and the Jaguars and the Titans. So each team from the North gets to play that division once. And then the other division they matched up with were the, was the NFC East, which is definitely much more improved than it was last year, but it wasn't mm-hmm. an incredibly competitive division last year. Obviously, Dallas is, is much better. So I was struggling to get on the Vikings bandwagon because I'm not a huge Sam Bradford fan. I think that quarterbacks are, have shown what they are with their body of work, and you can't take them on one or two games. Then... When they were 4-0, 5-0, I really was like, okay, maybe it is time to take them seriously. Anthony Barr is a great player. I think they've really built their defense. But, yeah, obviously now they've lost four in a row. And Green Bay is another team that I feel like every year, maybe for the last few years, they're kind of like the Patriots where they lose one or two games. The world is falling. What the heck is happening? What's wrong with Aaron Rodgers? And so it was really taking me a long, long time to believe all this hype about how they're struggling. But I think it's just kind of catching up with Green Bay that they've relied so, so much on Aaron Rodgers over the last few years. And I've always thought that if you only had him on the field, the Packers would still be an 11 or 12 win team. But it just seems like the lack of wide receivers and the lack of defense is really catching up to them. And, and you know, you can go very far with a single quarterback, but it's tough to go all the way and win the Super Bowl. And, and I think maybe it's just kind of catching up to them that they have struggled to build around him. Right. And look... We can start in a lot of places with this division. Green Bay, in the Tennessee game in particular, Aaron Rodgers throws the ball 50 times, throws for 370 yards, a pair of touchdowns. But when you give up 47 points and you give up 21 in the first quarter, you're always playing behind the eight ball. A team that doesn't like to run doesn't really have that luxury anymore because they're playing catch-up. Any defense can kind of plot to that and, and make life a little more difficult. I mean, he's still got his numbers, but... We blame a lot on Aaron Rodgers, and you know what? We probably blame a lot more unfairly on uh, McCarthy as well. The roster's not that good. They haven't drafted as well. We talk about how Green Bay always likes to stay local. If they don't draft well, you're going to have to eventually sign free agents to compete. I think that's just how life in the NFL works. So Green Bay at 4-5 and five shouldn't be that surprising on the surface when you take into account the entire 53-man roster. The Vikings, look, maybe the start was a little too feel-good. They've been injured. Bradford's not as good as he played those first couple weeks. You know, they've lost a couple close games. They won early. I think we're starting to see this really is a 9 or maybe a 10-win team, not the 12-win team that we thought 13-win after a 5-0 start. And the Lions, look, I like that story. I know they were off this week, but they're winning all these games close. I don't know how you could sustain all these fourth-quarter wins. Matt Stafford's great season. You know, notwithstanding. I still would have to probably pick Green Bay in this division if pressed, but I have no confidence in any of these teams, and I'm just like a lot of people out there waiting to see what the point spread is in that wild card game against the top team and probably looking at them. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't expect them to make a run. So the last week of the season for the NFC North, the Bears would play the Vikings and the Lions would play the Packers. So mm-hmm. maybe that Packers-Lions game would uh, would basically be like a play-in division champs game, potentially. So the Lions don't really have the playoff experience. They, they're they definitely an explosive team. But, uh, yeah, I, I think Green Bay, you can really never count them out. And even if they could get it, I mean, they've won the division before. With I think one year they were 8-7-1, and, and they can definitely get in as a 10-6 and six or 9-7 and seven team. 
and even make a run. I think it is different, you know, without the defense. The defense really isn't there. And definitely, if there's a quarterback I want with a 21-point deficit, it would be Aaron Rodgers. But it does put so much pressure on them. And even, I think that was the, the case yesterday, even when it was like 35-16, to 16, they could have come back, but it was just Tennessee kept scoring and yeah. scoring and scoring. Well, speaking of the Titans, I want to talk about them and, and one guy in particular, Adam. Marcus Mariota, is there a guy that's developed more than him in the last couple of years? Look at his stats. He still has yet to throw a red zone interception. He's got over 20 touchdowns in the red zone. To me, this is a guy that he's the kid that skipped three grades you know, in the summer. He's gotten so much better from the time he entered the league just a short while ago. Yeah, I think his football IQ is, is really good, and he just kind of goes about his business, works really hard. Obviously, he's a very quiet leader, but... I think everyone in the locker room respects him and, and likes him. You know, I'm still a little bit hesitant to jump on the board, but Tennessee is kind of building around him, and I think DeMarco Murray and Delaney Walker's a pretty good tight end, and I think their wide receivers are beginning to step up. Pleasantly surprised with their, their coaching and stuff. So, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I, I wasn't 100% sold that his style of play in, in Oregon would translate to the NFL or at least be sustainable, kind of as we saw with Colin Kaepernick and stuff. But yeah, you know, I think he definitely is growing a lot, and and it's nice to see someone who takes so much pride and and works so hard at their craft, which I think should be a grant, a granted in the NFL. But you maybe don't see it as much as you expect you would. Right, and I'm not. I think too, he he's a smart football player. That's very underrated. It's easy to say that good decision making matters, but what I mean by that is he can run. He doesn't look to run all the time. Maybe like an RG three or Michael Vick before he you know got polished did. He doesn't have the best receivers around him. I'm not drinking the Mike Malarkey or the Malarkey Kool-Aid, I should say. If you build the roster around him, he's going to even get that much better. This is still a team in transition, but at 5-5 five and five in, their, in their poor division, why can't they make a run this year? So I'm a big fan of his. I think it's only going to get better with time. It's hard not to like what we're seeing out of Mariota and the Titans. Now I'm going to give you a chance, though, Adam, to talk about your hometown team, the Chicago Bears. 36-10. to 10. They get destroyed by the Bucks, And I should point out that the touchdown that was thrown was a Hail Mary at yeah. the end of the half. So I know, look, I think, I don't know where I stand on the does Jay Cutler suck debate, but it seems like every time we think drastically one way or the other, he does something to, to bring it back round hole. Yeah. Two weeks ago, he looks great. They beat the Vikings on Monday night. Yesterday, one of his worst performances in a long time. How bad is it for your team, the Bears, now 2-7 and seven, and their quarterback position? Yeah, it's just so darn frustrating. And, and, you know, I can't really buy into all of the body language. I know that's a big thing with Jay Cutler. Does he care? Does he not care? I don't know. You know, I don't know him, obviously. But it just seems to me that he's a guy that consciously, consciously knows or decides when he wants to play and when he doesn't want to play. His last game on Monday night, we saw that he was a guy whose job was legitimately on the line. Brian Hoyer had been playing well. The wins weren't coming, but from an efficient statistical standpoint, Hoyer was playing well, and it seemed like maybe, and it definitely wasn't the first time, but but there was a conscious effort to have Jay Culler not be the starting quarterback for the Bears, and he showed up and surprised the Vikings, which at that point, you know, the Vikings were still the big bad, big, bad Vikings. A lot of people thought it was a, and it was a huge upset. But it's so frustrating because the Bears will do this. They will play, they just legitimately play to the level of their competition, and we saw it last year when they beat the Packers on Thanksgiving. An amazing upset late in the season, prime time. And, you know, I was listening to Olin Krutz, who does the Bears postgame show, and, and he was saying that it's easy to be a leader when the lights are on, prime time game, division matchup. But then how do you for a noon game against Tampa Bay? Yeah. And that was the same thing last year. You know, they, they beat the Packers, and, and then you look at their schedule going forward, and you think, hey, maybe we can go on a little bit of a run here. But then last year they ended up losing to the 49ers and the Vikings. Robbie Gold missed a couple field goals late in each of those games. And that just seems to be the case with the Bears, where it's just Cutler knows what pressure is on him, and he gives you just enough, just enough to be like, oh, yeah, this guy is definitely an NFL quarterback. He's got a great arm. He can win some games. And then as soon as you start believing, they just backtrack. And it's so frustrating because I can't say, obviously, that it's conscious or not, but it just feels like... I don't understand how you could be that inconsistent and that great for one game and then backtrack so badly the next. Right, and I think, too, I, I think Cutler has a lot of talent. We've seen him play well. It's not so much does he care with me. The more I watch him play, it's kind of 
very, very front-runner-like. And what I mean by that is when things are going great, when, when he gets off to a good start, when the team's doing well, Cohen looks great out there. He has total command. He's picking his spots. He, he does give a damn, so to speak. But yesterday, they get down early, he throws a pick, and then it just shuts off. You talked about a quarterback that you trust down 21 more than anyone being Aaron Rodgers. I think Cutler might be bottom of my list. When things go bad, he just shuts out. He removes himself from consciously being connected to the game. And I think you see that. And I don't know if it's just his makeup, if he just doesn't like losing. But he's not somebody that I think you can really fight with. And you've said those noon games in, T- in Tampa Bay might have something to do with it. He doesn't get up for those games for whatever reason. Look, the Bears weren't going to be a team that was going to contend this year. But they have a lot of questions going forward about their future. And I don't know if Cutler is the guy to grow with them on their journey to try to get relevant again. Yeah, and like you said, obviously this wasn't going to be a year where confetti's falling on them at the end of the season. But it is frustrating because looking at their schedule, I think on paper they had the, the softest schedule going into the year. And when you look back at the season, you're going to see, okay, we had played the Jaguars, and obviously the Buccaneers are not an especially strong team. Coming up, they still they play the 49ers, and you know they play the Titans, who obviously played really well yesterday, but I think that is a very winnable game. So the opportunities, when you look back at it, are going to be there. And yeah, it's just frustrating because you have color. There's some games where he lights it up and they put a whole bunch of points on the board, and then other games it's just three and out after three and out. And yeah, especially, I mean, if you're down by four or seven in the fourth quarter with one drive left, some quarterbacks, you're like, crap, he's definitely going to take the ball in and score with color. I'm just waiting for the interception. (laughs) Yeah, it's a shame, man. And look, 141 points scored this year. That's significantly less than the Browns and a lot of other teams. Only the Rams have scored less points than the Bears this year. So I know color missed a few of those games, but... Tampa Bay was a game that they could have had. They didn't, and we'll see what develops from here. Before I let you go, Adam, talking NFL Football Week 10 with Adam Musto, there's a couple other games that you know we're not going to dive into completely, but the AFC West had a lot to say about this week. Now we have three seven-win teams in that division. Chiefs beat the Panthers in dramatic fashion, storming back late, and the Broncos, man, returning the PAT play the first time in NFL history that that made an ultimate difference, the block PAT return for a conversion. This is suddenly becoming the best division in football, and I think Sunday we showed that they can also, these teams, win some close games. Yeah, I know You know, fans of those teams in the division were definitely happy that the uh, Patriots lost, too, because that would potentially open the door for possible number one seed uh, and definitely a bye. So Denver obviously has the playoff experience, but it'll be interesting to see what Trevor Simeon, is he ready for prime time? He's played well, but eventually, you know, he's going to have to be the guy that, that takes over. Even though, you know, last year the, the, the Broncos obviously made their run without a whole lot of contribution from Peyton Manning. You could have put a lot of players in that position. And Kansas City is another team that has struggled in the playoffs. Alex Smith, when you look back, obviously had that amazing Saints game with the 49ers years right. ago, but I'm sure there's a lot of skeletons you'd like to exercise and and uh oakland's an interesting team too you know i think people are a little hesitant i would put myself in there to jump all into the Derek carr bandwagon it still seems like when they win games it's a huge upset so you're kind of waiting for them to flip the switch and you know be expected to win every game and take care of business yeah. and good teams obviously can't drop must-win games against inferior teams so but they showed it last week and upcoming this week is a huge matchup as well i think the raiders the thing and I'm with you. Defensively, we still don't trust that team on that side of the ball, and that's where you win a lot of these close games. In the playoffs, Carr's been amazing, but are they going to ask him to throw for 350 yards every week? That's a tough task when you get to playoff caliber defenses. When you talk about the Chiefs and Broncos this week, Denver needed this game to stop the bleeding, and the Saints are much improved in New Orleans. Not an easy place to play. They make the play when they have to completely steal that game on the road. So maybe that will bode well as they go forward. And the Chiefs, look, they resolved from 17 down. I didn't think that was possible. We can talk about Carolina's struggles and and everything that's going on with their season, but a Kansas City Chiefs team is not built to come back from 17 down at any point in the game with Andy Reid's offense. And to their credit, they did. These are the three teams that are going to make both wild cards and a division champion in some order. I just... I'd be hard pressed to bet against it at this point. Yeah, I mean, with the other, the way the other teams in the AFC have played, it definitely does seem like the two wild cards will come from the West. Yeah, Kansas City has an awesome secondary, and I really like the the Oakland Raiders' offensive line, so that could help carry them. 
you know, and, and I think with their with Kansas City and Denver's wins, yeah, it wasn't pretty. But I think in special seasons when teams kind of have the magic going, they win some games that they're not supposed to. And it, it some can call it lucky, but but I think you do have to win those games. And it's just kind of you know maybe it is kind of a sign of bigger things to come. Right, and look, all due respect to the Dolphins, the big win over the Chargers, they're 5-4. and four. I just don't see them or, or some of these other teams, Bills even, making a run at the wild card. Yeah, and I, we have to mention before I let you go, Adam, the worst, the, it was a great Sunday, but there's, there's still always a Rams game in there, and the Jets, and when they play each other, we got to really bring the average down. A 9-6 throwing win by the Rams that... Was the only game broadcast I might add in Los Angeles during that time slot, so I really want to thank the NFL TV rules for that one. Yeah, do you think maybe fans in LA, especially maybe neutral fans that are still thinking of coming on the, the Rams bandwagon, maybe they're thinking, hey, maybe can we not have the Rams back? Maybe we can just get you know the best game of the week rather than was... having to watch the Rams. You know, it's so funny that yeah. <laughs> Jack in the Box, Jack in the Box apparently has a promotion where if the Rams score two touchdowns. Everyone gets a free hamburger, but I don't anticipate that happening. And I guess the marketers there knew what they were up to when they made that deal. Yeah, I think it was a genius move by somebody that obviously studies football. That was the worst case scenario possible across the board. You had that being the only game on. You had a 9-6 dud in that main time slot, 10-1 to local time out in Los Angeles. The Rams won, so Goff's not going to play again. And yeah. it and Fisher didn't even get another loss to strive towards his all-time record for most losses by a head coach. I can't really think of a positive from that game. Yeah, I think the Jets are one of the most unwatchable teams in the NFL, and it's so it's so frustrating to have to watch that. Yeah, well, hey, I got to give the the Jets some credit. I know as a fan of an 0-10 team right now, the Jets are cornering the bad quarterback or mediocre quarterback market. So. You know, it's good. They have four of them, and we're not sure any of them uh, can be legit guys. Well, Adam, thanks again for coming on the show. You're now officially a reoccurring guest, and uh, we'll have to have you on soon to uh, break down some more NFL Wild developments. Perfect. Anytime. Thanks to Adam Musto for coming on the show. On short notice, it was a football NFL emergency. He handled the house call with ease. Special thanks to him. He's a football guy, as am I. We were able to get through what we needed to with ease. Only a couple more weeks left of the NFL season. Still a lot to be decided. All right, now it's time to go to the world of mixed martial arts. UFC 205 took place in New York City this past Saturday. And here and now is Kenny Kaczynski, a good friend of mine from high school. We were teammates. He was the goalie. I was one of the defensemen. Got to know him there. Big UFC guy. He's going to help me break down UFC 205 next on The Money Mitch Effect. Okay, joining me now on the line of The Money Mitch Effect, we have a real special guest, blast from my past, Ken Kaczynski. Kenny, thanks for joining the show. Oh man, happy to be here. Happy, happy to talk to you again. It's definitely been a while. We're both big sports fans. And one of the most common bonds that we have in our sports fanhood, aside from you know Brown's misery, of course, the UFC, our common fanhood. UFC 205 this weekend, this past Saturday, New York City, first time they've hosted a pay-per-view. A record-breaking pay-per-view, Kenny, one that did a lot of numbers, set a lot of records, ultimately will go down in history. The loaded card was headlined by Conor McGregor defeating Eddie Alvarez becoming a dual threat, a champion in two divisions, now has the lightweight title. McGregor, TKO, Alvarez in the second round, and Kenny as a fan of the sport that had the biggest name in the sport right now, backing up what he said. What's your initial reaction to what we witnessed, the biggest pay-per-view ever, maybe, and McGregor coming out on top, TKO? Just watching that fight, just pure domination by McGregor. It doesn't look like... It's like he's in a class well and above anybody he's ever fought. It was almost embarrassing to watch Eddie Alvarez in there because he's McGregor's always out of range and he's always just in range. I mean, you watch the knockout; it was a four-punch combo to take mm-hmm. Eddie Alvarez down, and it was just a thing of beauty. And it really reminds me of when BJ Penn was the two-class champion. Nobody could touch him. I mean, he was the best of the best, and right now McGregor's the best of the best. 
He certainly is, Kenny. And I think the biggest thing I, I took away from this fight was that unlike the Aldo fight, which was an unbelievable knockout, this wasn't just a one-punch or a one-hit wonder, so to speak. He had him down, what, three times in the first round? I mean, he was dominant so much so much faster, so much you know more lethal with his combos. I mean, he was pulling... You know when I knew the fight was over? I knew the fight was over when he was pulling the old Roy Jones Jr. trick with his hands behind his back because he was toying with him, and he knew he was better and faster, and he got the job done, backed up every word he said, and he did it in such a dominant fashion. I'm not going to lie, when McGregor first came in and was talking all this trash, I really wasn't a fan. I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like what he said and all that, but he's backing it up now. And the way he fights, I, I, how are you not a fan of the way he fights? He yeah. talks trash. He knocks people out. He doesn't have to knock people out. Like, you watch Eddie Alvarez. If Eddie Alvarez wanted to stand and bang that whole time, Conor McGregor would have just beat him up for five rounds if that's where he wanted to go. Lucky for him. Uh, I think John McCarthy stopped the fight for him. <laughs> it really was. Alvarez is a tough fighter. I don't want to say that things would have been differently out of respect for McGregor's dominance if they fought a couple years ago. But Alvarez definitely had a lot of miles on him. And anytime you get you know, hit in the chin, <laughs> it's probably going to wear, wear you down, wear off your effectiveness. So I don't want to say Alvarez yeah. was damaged goods, but you could tell he, he definitely had been around the block, and I think that hurt him when McGregor got to him. It wasn't the first time he'd been tagged. Well, yeah, you know, going into this fight, you, you even asked, right, do you think Alvarez really has a chance? And I, I really did. I thought if he could get inside and kind of maybe tag McGregor a few times and make McGregor really try to keep Alvarez at distance. But Eddie came in there blitzing, looking for the big punch, and then that's all. He wasn't looking for combos, body shots. He was literally looking for, it looked like a home run mm-hmm. every time he go to sneak in. Because, I mean, McGregor was ready with the counter, but... Eddie wasn't willing to stay, I guess, within range of Eddie. I guess he was more afraid of Connor, but Connor could reach him all over the ring. We saw him slip, too. We saw Alvarez slip in the first round. That was actually foreshadowing that he was going for that home run. McGregor was so... He was at peace, Kenny, and that's the biggest thing to me. He knew that he had the speed advantage. He was fighting so calm in there. That struck me. Knowing as good as he is, knowing what he's proved in his last couple fights... To know, to have the confidence. it was He's cocky for sure, outside the fights and promoting it. But he is a very confident fighter, and he knew he could get the job done and didn't have to rush anything in that fight. Oh, this is this is Dana White's dream right here, a guy like this coming in. Especially after John Jones. He needs someone like this to really kind of win everyone back over again. Dana's right. in love with him, and rightfully so. He's making him a ton of money. Well, and I think it's interesting, too. You're exactly right, because... Jose Aldo, he wanted to do this same path. You know, this was brought up last week on the show. He wanted to do this. He wanted to be a two-weight class champion, and Dana White wouldn't let him. Conor McGregor says he wants to do it. He's backing it up with dollar signs. Dana White lets him do it. I think Dana White's no dummy. He knows where where the bread is earned and what can actually get the job done money-wise. And right now it's Conor McGregor. Yeah, I mean, you got to follow the dollar signs, man. It's no mystery. I just think, and one last thing before we move on, I think McGregor knew from the time he danced his way on that stage in that Frank Lucas pimp coat to about oh. the start of the fight, he knew that he was a dominant fighter, he was confident, he would get the job done, but he also knew that the best thing that he could do for the product is to be a showman, to get eyeballs to tune in and then back it up. It was a perfect execution of a perfect plan. Yep. Can't argue that, man. Everything he did was perfect. So we're talking UFC 205 with Ken Kaczynski on the Money Mitch effect. And we're going to get to the main card in just a second. But, Kenny, there was one match in the preliminary card that really struck your eye. What was it, and what did you come away thinking from, arguably, the fight of the prelims? It's like Nurga Gometoff fight and Michael Johnson. Nurga Gometoff coming in was undefeated, but... Michael Johnson is one of the tougher opponents in the weight class, and Khabib took Johnson down and literally just manhandled him for three rounds and wound up stopping it, uh, submitting him in the third round. The one thing that I have written down right here, I didn't take really notes on the uh, prelims, but the one thing I have is amazing strength. Like, yeah. He made Johnson look like a high schooler out there, and he's a pro. It, it was amazing to me how, how strong he really is. 
And I don't think Johnson even realized how strong he actually was either. No, and I'll just say, as a fan, I'm not going to put myself in that diehard category. I'd heard the name. I didn't really know much about him. Now I know. Now the world knows. And now, it's funny, who did he call out after that fight? Who's the first person he wants to fight? Mr. McGregor. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure if he's there yet, but this is an interesting prospect. Yeah, well, he is undefeated, so he's known, but it's just a matter of getting that key win, and this is a big key win for him, especially because he's been injured lately, too. So, Kenny, you're calling in from the Seattle area, which is a nice segue for our next match I want to talk about on the main card. Seattle's own Misha Tate loses to Raquel Pennington, decides she wants to retire after the fight. The fight itself, I thought, was a clear win, obviously. Pennington got the job done. Starting with her, you think she's in the game now for being a contender for a title? Yeah, she's got to be. I mean, Misha Tate's the number one contender, and she took a... I mean, she beat her up. That's plain and simple. She dominated the fight. She mm -hmm. was a better fighter, better striking, better ring control. Even when she got her on the ground, she just out-muscled her. She's got to be a talk to fight Amanda Nunez next. That division is so muddled right now. And it's funny because it was Rousey's division, the Bantamweight division, to just dominate. She loses to home, home loses to Tate, Tate loses to Nunez. Now we have Rousey, Nunez coming up. But I wonder, a Pennington's got to be right there. There's a lot of names. Tate's removed herself from consideration. But that was a dominant performance. That wasn't getting caught in a flurry and making a mistake. I don't know what the one judge was thinking having a 29-28. It was a clear in my opinion, 30-27 to 27 fight across the board. For sure. You could even maybe even give her a 10-8 round in the first because Danny Guillotine in the ground to pound. And she had good takedown defense. But this division, this woman's bantamweight, is really exciting. There's a lot of talent here. And you'll, you're going to start seeing more and more. Like, now we have two women fights on the main card. And I think you're going to see more of this bantamweight showing up, too, because there's a lot of girls coming up here that can do some damage, and they have some real skills. And I think we're going to start to see more and more because this is becoming more and more popular. It's funny how it's changed in, a, in the last couple of years from Dana White not really being sure that he wanted women's fighting, and now it's one of the best divisions, man or woman, in his company. So it's an interesting development. Yeah. Speaking of Tate, though, she retires, says she retires right after the fight, said that she hadn't really thought of it, the outcome kind of had something to do with it. She's 29 years old, Kenny. Do we think this is a legit retirement, or is this the boxing UFC-style retirement where it's more of a sabbatical than officially hanging up the gloves? See, now for Misha Tate, I think her whole thing was for a while. She could never really win the belt. She finally won it, and then she lost it really quick. I don't know. I think she may be coming to the realization that she's not a champion. Maybe she's one of the top fighters, but she's not going to be a long-time belt holder. I don't know if that's the question, but I think maybe it might just be a sabbatical because she's been fighting a lot, and she didn't get her belt, and she had a couple tough losses in a row. Maybe she's got to sit back and just take some time for herself and think things through. Maybe it's, is, is this what she really wants to do? She can still train. you know. She, I think she has a gym out here. Not yeah. that she has to remove herself completely from fighting, but maybe that's what she really wants to do. Yeah, I'm not going to put myself in the shoes of a fighter or any athlete that suffers a, you know, a pretty heartbreaking loss moments after you're not really thinking clear. I think anybody that's played sports can attest to that. But right. I think she needs a time off. She accomplished her dream in fighting, which was to win the title. Now, she had it for a short amount of time, but she was a champion. No one will ever take that away from her. So I think she's going to take time off. It wouldn't surprise me if she stepped away for good. But I use the caveat of you can never really know what the fighter that's not even 30 yet that still would have some fight left in her. But she's also seeing this division is getting a lot better. And it might not be the clearest path to get back to title contention the way things are going. I agree. Everything that you just said there, you painted a perfect picture of that division and her Misha right there. It's tough. I mean, and Holmes lost her last two fights after winning the title. It is not easy anymore. If Nunez beats Rousey... And convincingly so, then we'll have a clear pecking order somewhat in that division. But Rousey gets her belt back. Where do we go from there? You know, Nunez. And I'm very intrigued. I might be the, this might be the most intriguing division in all of the UFC. I've said it before, but it's pretty good. I agree. A lot of new faces, man. That's why. 
So we're going to go in sequential order talking with Ken Kaczynski now on the Money Mitch Effect, UFC 205 in New York City. It was a middleweight fight, a three-round fight that involved Chris Weidman, hard to believe. Maybe even harder to believe, he got knocked out in that third round by Yul Romero. And Kenny, this was the one point in the entire fight, in the entire card, I should say, where watching it live, paying attention, I literally didn't know what happened. <laughs> I watched it. I wasn't sure what Romero did. It took the replay to see that flying knee. Unbelievable, his performance. This is one of the fights I really, 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 really wanted to see. I, this was up there with the other title fights. I love watching you all Romero fight. At times, don't get me wrong, sometimes he stalemates around there and dances around. But this this is a fight he was going to stand at bank because Chris Weidman's not going to let you off. And, man, he has some explosive power. You see the guy. He's just, that is the perfect physique. Like, if, oh, yeah. if you want to say I want a perfect body, that's the perfect body. He is a monster. And, like, you saw the explosion, man. He hit him with that flying knee so fast and split his head wide open. Personally, I think it should have been stopped right then and there. I think Mario Yamasaki kind of screwed up and didn't get in there fast enough. I would, uh, I would agree with that. But the only thing I'll say, maybe, and he should be held to a higher standard than us, but maybe he didn't know what just happened either. I mean, we saw... It was lightning. And you said about Romero having the perfect physique and being in the best shape. I can't believe the dude's 38, 39 years old. I mean, that is just ridiculous to me, how he's cheated well, genetics. He's, he's an Olympic athlete, you know what I mean? And, right. But the guy's striking has gotten way better, and he's a freak wrestler. You want to get on the ground with that guy? And he's a black belt jiu-jitsu? Like, man, he's right. one of the scariest guys in that division, dude. I thought the fight going into the last round might have been even. It could have been 2-0 Romero, but it was close. I say that because... No, it was, I had it 1-1. Yeah. I had it 1-1 for that round. And I say that because it wasn't like he needed to hit the home run to win the match trailing. Like, it was right there. It was it was still up in the air. Weidman, though, Weidman's second time he's been brutally beaten like this. In this fight in particular, Kenny, I thought he was very neutralized. This is a guy that has wrestling experience. But you mentioned he's not an Olympic wrestler. He didn't win a medal in the Olympics like Romero did. And I thought he never really found his footing and could really set in and set the tone like we're accustomed to seeing. That first round, he definitely controlled the center of the ring and he had the better striking. And then the second round, I feel like he was initiating grappling. I, I don't know if he got tagged or something like that. Oh, it, it was the great trip. That's right. That's right. Over yeah. here. You all Romero, trip and takedown. And once he got him on the ground, I think Romero knew he had him there. And he just kept him there the whole time. Yeah. But before that... Weidman was a better striker, controlling the center. I mean, Romero's spit body kicks in and here there, but it was Weidman's fight until he got it to the ground, and then that third round flying knee, like Jesus, you know. Yeah, that was uh, that was frightening. But now we have Romero, 39 years old. He overcomes the tainted supplement suspension, so he's back in the fold. Beats Weidman. Getting into it with Bisping there after the fight. Bisping not exactly showing him uh, the champion's welcome. This looks like it's going to be a fight down the road, and if that's the case, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, are you making Romero a favorite to win this title? Absolutely. I, to be honest with you, I think Fizzing's the weakest, weakest champion, I feel like, out of any of them. Like, I, I know. I mean, he's just, I, yeah. don't get me wrong, but I feel like that middleweight class, there's, a, there's killers, man. There's a lot of killers, and Romero... You know, he can fight Romero, and Bisping can fight another old guy, you know what I mean? So it's the old guy against the old guy, and then we'll have someone else probably come. I mean, I could see Romero holding the title for a couple fights, but at the same time, with those big muscles, he gas quick. No disrespect to Bisping. Uh, he was the right man in the right place at the right time, taking the fight on short notice against Rockhold, winning it. He beat Dan Henderson, who's pretty old, we know that, and now Romero, who's 39 going on 19, Looks like he's ready to ready to take hold of that division. I, I I'm with you. I no disrespect to Bisping, but it just looks like it's Romero's time, and it's gonna be very shortly, in my opinion. Yeah, and like you said, like Rockhold, like he's another killer. There, that, there's killers in that whole weight class, and I don't think Bisping's the king of the killers. <laughs> yeah, it's not looking likely. Another championship fight on this card. We'll go to women's strawweight, Kenny. I've resigned myself to not really trying to pronounce these names. I'm, I have nothing against Polish people, but 
<laughs> I've been going Double J and Double, Double K, but we know who they are. Joanna Champion, as she's nicknamed, and I'm going to refer to her as, <laughs> taking on Carolina Cole Kawich, which I think I came pretty close to getting. And look, Joanna wins, unanimous decision, a very close fight, still undefeated, still the standard bearer in this division. Maybe the best complete fight, five rounds of back and forth action, 49-46 across the board. But Kenny, we got another dominant champion on our hands that, in Joanna's case, has no indication that she's going to give up the title anytime soon. No. So I had Joanna. She dominated the first two rounds. You're striking, and then Carolina. She came around. And oh, yeah. You saw the damage that Jay uh, Chick had it on her face, man. She <laughs> got she got tagged pretty good, man. Fourth she round. Had a black yeah. Eye. She's bleeding. I think she had a broken nose, to be honest with you. I think that happened in the second round. Well, so, yeah. I mean, her her striking was far superior. Like, you know, she would end every flurry with a kick. And, like, it would always be a two-three punch combo, you know, with two kicks involved. Whereas Kovalkovich, she would have, uh, you know, she'd get one or two punches here, slipping it out, but she wouldn't put together combos like Sinjajek did. And you could, her striking just looked far superior. And yeah, yeah. she was sharper, quicker, cleaner. Not, not saying that Kowalkovich wasn't, but it's, she just looked that much better. And she is the dominant champ. But, again, this white straw weight, a lot of young, uh, a lot of young people are coming up in that weight class. A lot of Thai. Muay Thai. Yeah, Muay Thai coming up. And that's really big. And that's what Jen Chachak's background kind of was, too. So if some killer comes up wanting to fight her, I can see it. But right now, that's her division. There's no one better than her. You notice, too, that... You don't even have to be a fan of the sport. Just watching her fight, you can tell. That's an athlete. Like, she is just an athletic, very good, very talented fighter in that octagon. I will say, I was I was impressed with Carolina, the way she fought, the way she wouldn't back down. These two had fought together before. Carolina actually said she looked up to her, to Double J, in that sense. That she thought that that was the standard bearer. And I don't think, she definitely wasn't embarrassed. She gave it all she had, ultimately you got to tip your cap to the better fighter. But, as and I agree with you, that division has some fighters, there's talent coming up, but there is a clear number one. And I'm wondering now, I'm wondering if she's going to take that next step in UFC war, if she's going to become that celebrity figurehead, because now she's fighting, she fought on UFC Kenny 205 in New York City, the biggest pay-per-view they've ever had, and she stood out. That, to me, speaks volumes about what she's done and what she's capable of. Yep, and, and again, this that says a lot about, I mean, this main card, you know, having two female fights on here, which coming full circle from what Dana said, there'll never be a woman fighter in UFC. And that goes to show how much talent these girls actually have and how much respect Dana White has for these people. These girls can really fight, man. And Jim Jacek and Pennington are two of the top ones. You know what I mean? Well, hell, all four fighters that were on the card, they're the top of the top. They're mm-hmm. the cream of the crop. And he got his money's worth. Absolutely. So talking UFC 205 with Ken Kaczynski on the Money Mitch Effect, and we're going to finish talking the card with the welterweight division. Before we get to the championship fight, I do want to point out, Kenny, the one fight that didn't happen that we were all expecting to was the Cowboy, Cerrone, did not get to fight Gaslam, who missed weight. Gaslam did not hit weight. He missed his fight. Cerrone was obviously upset. He, He got his show money, but not his winning money. He's already on the next card to fight Matt Brown at UFC 206, but we wanted to see this fight. We didn't. Where are you looking at with this division now? The title fight that we were going to get to in a sec ended in a draw. Cerrone wants back in. Brown's there. Waller's waiting. How do we make sense of all this? Cowboy is one of my favorites. I mean, I can watch him fight. Any t- and that guy's always game to fight. So mm-hmm. I don't really know what he really wants to do. Like, honestly, that guy's always down to fight. You know, Cerrone was fighting lightweight. Fights both, so I don't. It's really what Cerrone really wants to do. Is he like the weight cut? I heard, yeah, I've heard him on some podcasts talking how he's not really, you know, liking the weight weight cut as much. I mean, now that he's a little bit older, but I mean, it's really up to him because I think he could be, he could definitely contend for the title in either weight class, especially. I think lightweight. I think mm. him and McGregor would be a fun one wow. because yeah, I think that would be a cool fight for everyone to see with their length and everything. It'd be, a, I think it'd be a good fight. It's funny because Gaslam, Dana White said, he's not fighting at welterweight ever again. He missed it by 10 pounds. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's yeah. not just a couple glasses of water. And uh, 
full enough on the dessert. That's a that's a legit miss. So that's real wishful thinking trying to make weight. <laughs> it is. So Cerrone will get the Cowboy will get Matt Brown at UFC 206. Robbie Waller comes back after his knockout beating that he took. He'll be in the mix as well. But the welterweight title fight that we saw, Tyron Woodley, the champion, Stephen Thompson, Wonder Boy, the challenger. It ended in a draw. It ended in a majority draw. A lot of confusion at the end of that one. 48-47 was the one judge that didn't score to draw for Woodley. But we saw one of the lowlights of a very historic career of Bruce Buffer did not read the result right. That was my initial. He's <laughs> Steve Hart. Well, he didn't award it. He did not award it to Miss Philippines. So that's good. She was not <laughs> announced the winner of this fight. But look, Kenny, the confusion was all on Woodley's face. He he was talking to Joe Rogan. He saw the world crumbling around him, and you could see that split second where he thought they're going to try to take his belt from him. Yep, that's when Joe Rogan just kept telling him it's okay, it's going to be all right, it's okay, it's all right, it's all right, you forgot your belt. You know, he had to really talk him down. He was about to lose it. I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't fully aware. I caught on a little later that something was wrong in the way it was read because, honestly, you don't see a lot of scorecards like this. 148-47 and the rest 47 all. You had to have a 10-8 round in there, which you did, and you had to have a couple rounds that were a flip of a coin, which we also did. But, Kenny, do you think this was the right call, a draw? This is 100% a draw. Okay. Because, uh, which round did they give him the 10-8 round? Give him one? That, Probably that one. one. Well, here's the thing. Round one was the round where I think both judges felt it was 10-8. I'm not sure I didn't see the breakdown. But round four... Woodley almost put him away. Would have put many, many lesser fighters away. But there was those last 40 seconds of round four where Thompson got out and was in a very, very advantageous position. So it might have been four. Yeah. Four might have been the one where some had 10-8, some had 10-9. That's the one I think I had round four as the 10 He nearly TKO'd him and near guillotine. And that guillotine was deep, and I don't know how Thompson really got out. But yeah, that round four, he did get on top of advantage position. Wasn't doing much with it, but the last 10 seconds, he, mm-hmm. he rained out some elbows. But one thing I really took out from this Wonder Boy, man, his, if he stays on his feet, he's going to be tough to beat for sure. I remember I told you before this fight, I had Woodley in a knockout. I didn't see it going like this. This five rounds. I mean, round five was all Thompson. I bet you if they won another round, it, Woodley could have dominated the round if he gets him to the ground. Yeah. Stephen Thompson's down D is, I mean, it's okay. He's got that wide stance, and Woodley is really, really strong. And I think, <laughs> I, I'd love to see this fight again. Before they even read the results, I just had rematch, real big, written on my notes, <laughs> question mark. For yeah. sure. It's a draw for me. We're locked in now, and that's good for Cowboy, for Brown, for Lawler as he recovers, that we kind of get some breathing room now. This rematch is coming. Two things I noticed watching this fight. One, Thompson holding his hands down low because he had the height advantage. He's so trained in karate, and his hands were so quick that he was able to be on his feet and with his guard down from the untrained eye. The second observation, though. I cannot believe Tyron Woodley was fighting this at 170. <laughs> that is a 170-pound fight, and that is a large man that is very, very dangerous with his fists. This is why we yeah. watch fighting. This is why we watch sports. Two guys that are polar opposites that you don't know what's going to happen putting on an unbelievable show. Well, you see now Stephen Thompson, the way he fights, you see kind of more and more, not more and more fighters, but some fighters come up like, I feel like McGregor has adopted a similar style as Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Obviously, he doesn't have the striking background like Wonderboy, you know, being 57 and 0 in kickboxing, but that real wide stance, hands kind of low, use a lot of the oblique kicks, mm-hmm. you know, keep people at distance with your legs, and then blitz in for a few uh, punches here or there, combos, get in and out. But I think this is going to be a style that's going to start showing more and more. Yeah, I thought it was also a draw. I think this was as good of a fight as you'll see in any division. And going into the next one, I think it told us a lot about both these guys. They showed tremendous heart and resolve battling through it. But this is a war. And we're going to see the rematch, and we're going to see, who knows, maybe even a third one, depending on what Thompson can do if he can take the belt. But we had questions about Woodley. Remember, he lost to Rory McDonald thoroughly who got thoroughly beaten down by Thompson. 
But then here comes Woodley putting the fight right to Thompson. I'm excited for this division. Woodley's looking to me more and more. You see him fight like a legitimate champion. Thompson, though, won't back down either. Yeah, the one thing I didn't like too much, Woodley had his back to the cage a lot. Right. Kind of staying, like, I didn't like that that much. And uh, Thompson, if he stays standing the whole fight, he wins that fight. If Woodley doesn't ever take him to the ground, Thompson wins that fight. He'll win all five rounds. Right. Because that's the only way Woodley can really win is if he takes to the ground. Right, something to look for in the rematch, which is coming right around the corner. And also, i, I got to give props to Thompson for coming out to Wonder Boy by Tenacious D. That was very savvy. I think it set the tone. <laughs> I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I like that guy. So now we're going to wrap this up talking UFC 205 with Ken Kaczynski on the Money Mitch Effect. We talked about McGregor at the beginning of this discussion, Kenny. He now has two belts, lightweight, and he still has his featherweight title, which is actually... Unbelievable to me that the guy has not defended it yet. There's an interim champion out there, and he hasn't defended uh, either title. But here we are. He's got both belts. What do you think's next for this guy, Conor McGregor? When will his next fight be, in your opinion? Well, I know a lot of UFC fans, they really want to see him defend that featherweight title. Because I know me, I don't think he can really make that weight again. Doesn't look good when he tries to. Was on Death's door last time he did it, so I don't know if he can really make weight anymore. So I personally want to see him do that, and then the lightweight fight. Like I was saying before, I wouldn't. I really want to see Cowboy Cerrone fight McGregor. I think that would be a really good fight, but I don't know who they're gonna have to be a title contender. I mean, Diaz again, but a third time, <laughs> I don't know. Here's the one thing about that, Kenny, and this was pointed out to me: he has never defended a title that he's won. McGregor, even before when he was coming up, he wins his belts and he just moves. He's always about the chase, but never about actually defending it. And i got to give credit to uh, last week's guest for pointing that out, Jose Young's UFC writer, for, for bringing me up to speed on that. I don't know that he ever fights again, Featherweight. I'm not sure. I mean, we're, we're penciling it in. The fact that Dana White's let this happen is a testament to the cash cow that McGregor has become. But all those sitting with, a, with an interim belt... Two guys are healthy and they haven't fought yet. I don't know that that's in his plans. Yeah, and you know what? If he doesn't fight featherweight again, I don't put him in the same class as EJ Penn. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With the two titles. Because I feel like he was a featherweight, was the champ, and then he moved up to lightweight because he's actually a lightweight fighter. You, you kind of get where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think, look, two belts is a cool accomplishment, but I think the next step... For me, now the Aldo fight, Aldo wants revenge because he got knocked out last time. But McGregor, as much as he likes titles, Kenny, he likes money. (laughs) And I think that's going to be the driving factor in his fights. The (laughs) Diaz trilogy will happen. He'll be a lightweight championship superstar. But I don't think he's going to go by the book. That's the one thing we know about McGregor is that anything could happen. He'll be on a press conference before we know it about promoting a fight we had no idea was coming. (laughs) True story. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited, though. This guy's good for the sport, and if you like him, if you're a fan of his show, it's great. You have somebody that you can identify with and that you could, you know, root for. If you don't like him, he's the villain that the sport needs. You know, everybody needs, yeah. every sport needs somebody that you root against. This is that guy. He's either a hero or the anti-hero. There's really no in-between, and I totally get, I'm 100% understanding of both perspectives. But you know what? You can love him or hate him. The guy's winning. The guy's a winner, and he's a great fighter, and he's great to watch, and that's why he's getting paid all this money, because he puts on a great show. Absolutely. Well, Kenny, it was a blast talking UFC 205 with you. Hey, before I let you go, we go back in the hockey community a long time, and I know that your favorite NHL team is the Oilers. So do you think this is years like winning the lottery? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? When it first started, I was real skeptical to see how they would how the team was really going to be. I'm like, is this going to be a good year or what? And this is their legit team this year. You know, I haven't got to watch too many games, but um, keeping up with stats and whatnot, they they look like a real team. And it seems like Connor McDavid is a legit captain. Who would have thought being, what is he, all 20 years old? 19 still. Jesus Christ. That's my my reaction. And to that whole, uh, the whole being the captain of the Oilers thing. Yeah, Connor McDavid, unbelievable. He's going to be the best player in the league within the next two and a half years. I'm fully convinced of that. 
But it's more than that. We, we, you don't win games in the NHL. You don't win these number of games with one player. History has shown that. You guys have a real good squad. And if I was new to the game of hockey, had no prior dealings whatsoever, this is the team right now in 2016 that you need to get behind for the long haul. Well, yeah, you know what? Our goaltending's really coming around. Not to say that we didn't have good goalies, but Talbot, he's a real player, and you know what? We actually have real defensemen. I think before, they were going too much towards the offensive side of playing defensemen, so it really wasn't really too conducive to having a good goalie, like hanging him out to dry. Because you look at, uh, who was their goalie before? Now he's on Minnesota. Uh, Dubnik? Yeah, see, Dubnik, you look at, he goes to Minnesota, He's an all-star. He's <laughs> yeah. on the Oilers. He's terrible. And mm-hmm. that's all. It says a lot about how the team was playing previously. I mean, the personnel they had on defense—it was they're all offensive guys. Right. I think the squad is the squad that can really maybe make some noise in the playoffs this year. They could. They got the talent. They're playing defense. McClellan is a big addition. I think he's a reason for that as their coach now. I think. Look, yeah. I'm gonna actually be at the game this Thursday when they play the Kings. I want to see them against teams like that, teams that are going to grind it out, that the Oilers might have the offensive skill advantage on, but that play big boy hockey. If, if the Oilers start winning those games, all right, then we have something to really consider a problem in the playoffs. Right. I think in the acquisition of Lucic, that like, really helped their team's identity with that, you know, help bang in the corner someone big like that. And I mean, Lucic, you know, that's, everyone knows that guy. So he's a respected guy on the team, and I think he brings that mentality with him. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, you know what? It makes perfect sense that we roped in Milan Luchas to the UFC segment because if you mess with the Oilers or Connor McDavid, you're going to pay for it. <laughs> Kenny, pleasure talking to you. You're going to be welcome back here, you know, anytime. Thanks for talking to UFC. Thank you, man. It's been a blast. Awesome talking to you, man. Great job by both of our guests today, Adam Musto and Ken Kaczynski, both stand-up guys and sports aficionados. We're going to have them back soon, rest assured, if you were resting out there, or wondering, rest assured. The Money Mitch Effect can be found on SourCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can subscribe on all three of those sites, and follow me at Twitter at MoneyMitchM21, that's MoneyMitchM21, for sports takes and other pop culture references that probably won't make any sense if you don't like 80s movies. Thanks again for listening to the show. Two more episodes again planned this week. We're going to try to stick to three episodes a week for the better part of 2016, what's left of it anyway. So listen to the podcast for more sports takes. We'll get to basketball, some pop culture, some football, hockey as well. Mitch Michael signing off. Thank you again for listening to the Money Mitch Effect. Have a good week.